Welcome everybody to Centering Prayer, Practice of Conscious Contact with Herb Kagan. I'm Kristen Chirico, Director of Mission at Mary and Joseph Retreat Center in Rancho Palos Verdes, California. And um, Herb has been a longtime friend and participant and presenter at the Retreat Center and has graciously offered um, to provide these Zoom seminars as a fundraiser for Mary and Joseph Retreat Center. So we are absolutely thrilled that he's doing this. And um, for those of you who might be listening who weren't on the original recording, um, we do encourage you to donate as well to um, maryjoseph.org and hit the donate button. And there is a drop down menu with a choice for Herb Kagan donations and you can donate right there. So we appreciate any help. As you can imagine, it's been a little rough with COVID um, offering retreats and we really have very limited offerings in person. So um, we appreciate the financial assistance to help us stay on our feet to um, and be able to open up to full-time work again, hopefully in 2021. So this series goes on through 2021, June of 2021, with monthly offerings by Herb. And today I'm especially pleased to introduce, because I'm a Centering Prayer practitioner for a long time, and it um, really grounds me in my life, and so I'm really excited that so many of you will learn more about this practice, and I highly recommend it. So without further ado, I'll turn it over. Thank you, Tanya. Thank you, Christine. Thank you, Marlene, for your administration, and thank you, everybody, for gathering with us today for our Centering Prayer conversation. I am um, in a very informal mood today. And so, although it's going to look a little bit formal and it might even sound formal in terms of what we've been doing to introduce it, um, I, I really want this to be a gathering of like-minded people uh, whether you have experience with centering prayer or not, whether you have experience with meditation or not, and they're quite different, and I'll talk about that. It doesn't make any difference because I'm going to assume that I'll be uh, very clear and foundational uh, in terms of my comments. And we have an opportunity also to... Um, ask questions and have dialogue about your questions. What I'd like to propose, however, is that you make a note of your questions so that uh, we hold them until uh, I ask for some dialogue. That way uh, there'll be a flow to the conversation um, I'm uh, engaged in with regard to uh, the outline that I have uh, with the PowerPoint presentation. Uh, I'm going to be guided by it, but not driven by it. And I'm going to put it up now. Uh, but first, uh, most people probably are, uh, well, I'm going to put it up now. Let me just 
see how this technology works here. Yes, it works very well. If I, if I'm, if you're seeing what I'm seeing, you have on your screen a cover of my second book, which is my branding or my logo, as people tell me. And um, it's about 12 Steps to Spiritual Awakening, which uh, the subtitle of it, which you don't see, is Enlightenment for Everyone. Although I am in a 12-step program, proud of it, 36 years in recovery uh, from uh, addiction of alcohol. What I found in the 12-step program is what I was looking for when I went into the monastery at age 17. I wanted, I thought, to be a missionary Catholic priest. God had other thoughts for me, apparently, because I'm not one, and my children are quite glad that happened that way. Uh, but I was there for seven years. I was seeking something, but I didn't know what it was, and I didn't know that even, and I didn't find it. That's why I left. No fault of the monastery. Just my experience. I looked at psychology deeply. I have a graduate education in psychology, and I did the training to become a therapist, and I got the therapy that is suggested for therapists. And I was looking for something, but I didn't know what I was looking for, and I didn't know that I didn't know that. And I didn't find it. When it was revealed to me that I had an addiction problem, I went to the resource for addiction, a 12-step recovery program. And I, again, thirsty, thirsty, hungry, hungry, looking for something, but not knowing what I was looking for, but knowing that I was looking for and not finding it. Finally, somebody introduced me to the step process, the 12-step process. I'm not here to endorse the 12-step process. I'm just sharing my experience. Oh, I am endorsing it, but uh, I'm not promoting it. It is not a necessary piece for anybody, except for an addict, maybe. And um, at five years of sobriety, I was given the guidance through each of those 12 steps and an explanation of step 11 that changed my life. Now, I left the monastery in 1964, and I didn't meditate again for another 25 years. When this man showed me how to meditate, and he wasn't a spiritual guy in the sense of a trained spiritual director or any particular background in organized religion, but he understood the process of meditation. I began to meditate. A year later, Father Thomas Keating came to our area and he did a training for three days on centering prayer. He, that's his terminology for a consciousness practice. Prayer is a consciousness practice. Meditation is a consciousness practice. Contemplation is a consciousness practice. I'm going to talk about all three of those practices and how they're different and what they are and how they're integrated and organized. 
and of one whole. I call it intentional consciousness. It's a word I coined as a big, big, big net to cast over all of this effort to become more conscious. And I found that centering prayer, the contemplative practice, was an integral piece like the other side of the same coin, meditation being one side, contemplation being the other side, a different side of consciousness practice, but integrated as a single spiritual tool, a coin having two sides, heads and tails, if you will, meditation and contemplation, quite different in the approach, quite different in the purpose pretty similar in the outcome. And I'll be making a lot of those distinctions today. That was 1990. I stayed being a student of Father Keating, reading his books and going to 10-day retreats on an annual basis with him as he talked about various subjects, especially digging deeply into centering prayer and giving us that practice at his monastery in Snowmass, Colorado. One of the things that the retreat center offers is a twice a month gathering the second and the fourth Wednesday. That's the flyer that Tanya was talking about. She'll send to everybody after we finish here and we have a consolidated database. She will send out that flyer that if you wanna join us, Zoom has made it incredibly wonderfully available. We have people from Singapore and India and Israel and the UK join us on that. At the same time, his organization, Contemplative Outreach, has uh, printed and published a brochure that describes centering prayer. It's a one-page, two-sided description, and Tanya will also send that out. The retreat center asked me to facilitate that twice-a-month gathering, probably five or seven years ago, not under the mantle of a 12-step, but under the mantle of improving consciousness. People want to learn how to meditate or they want a place to gather to have a fellowship that supports them in their centering prayer practice. And um, we have up until March met twice a month and then we converted it to Zoom. The retreat center has been incredibly important to me and my family in terms of our own spiritual journey. They conduct retreats and they do one day events and they have teachings and they're ecumenical. It's a very fancy word meaning it's very inclusive. Anybody that wants to help in human development at the level of biology and psychology and sociology and theology, no matter what angle they have or what tradition they're proposing, they're welcome to come and make a presentation to people at the retreat center, ecumenical, y'all come, y'all come, yeah. 
All right, so this is about centering prayer. And as I mentioned, it's a practice. It's a practice of intentional consciousness. I'm assuming now you're seeing what I'm seeing because I'm putting a, a, a PowerPoint progressively. And um, that's going to be the dominant picture that you see. I think my picture's on it, but I'm not that important. You will hear my voice. And if you wanna pay attention to the looks on my face, that might help a little bit. But the uh, content of what I wanna talk about is um, going to be confirmed and supported with the PowerPoints. And as somebody asked, I'll put that PowerPoint on my website so that in fact you could uh, download that and or use it in conjunction with the audio that uh, this is a video but the audio uh, can be listened to on a mp3 or an mp4. I'm, I'm actually using words that I don't know the meaning of but I've heard and so I'm just repeating what I've heard. One of the prayers that I've adopted at the very core of my consciousness practice is the serenity prayer. It's not an official prayer for anybody, but it is a prayer that many people have adopted to help them aspire to understanding what they can influence and what they can't influence. Notice I used the word influence. I didn't use the word control. I, I've jettisoned the word control many years ago because I realized we don't control anything. Reality just is reality. It's a huge concept. Reality is just reality. Reality does not adjust to us. We need to adjust to reality. It just is. It's not right or wrong. It's not fair, good, or evil. Reality itself just is. And it manifests on a moment-by-moment-by-moment by moment by moment basis in the present moment. And as many, many spiritual traditions have demonstrated, It's our reaction to, our attitude about, and our behavior in reality that determines our life. If we try to adjust reality to our expectations, we suffer, and so do people around us. If we meet reality and accept reality as it is and adjust to it, we are in a flow. Not to say that there's not going to be betrayal and hurt and mischief from other people, even criminal behavior. That's just the world. That's what is. And we need to observe what is and protect ourselves in the best way that we can and navigate the shoals and the rocks in this flow in the river of life. I heard the other day, just two weeks ago, one, people are so wonderful. They capture words to describe their own experience. And he said, life is a practice. Oh my God, life itself is a practice. Of course, 
Meditation is a practice. Prayer is a practice. Contemplation is a practice. Centering prayer is a practice. Going to the gym is a practice. Going to uh, the piano teacher is a practice. My own spiritual director said, all people on a spiritual journey have a practice. And they practice their practice. And they're faithful to their practice. And then their practice is faithful to them. It's a mantra. I mean, it's a little bit long. It's wonderful wisdom. He was in a monastery with Thomas Merton. That was his spiritual director. He was in a monastery at the same time I was in a monastery, different monasteries. Unfortunately, I didn't have anybody like Thomas Merton, although the outcome probably would have been the same. <clears throat> All people on the spiritual path have a spiritual practice. I'm going to repeat it. And they practice their practice. And they're faithful to their practice. And their practice is faithful to them. That captures our day. That's the roadmap for the today. Let's begin with the serenity prayer. You're all on mute. So you're welcome to pray out loud or pray to yourself or not pray at all if that's your inclination. I have no rules. None. Zero rules. I have experience, I have some information, and I make some suggestions. Depending on your decisions and your attitude about all of that and the actions that you take, you will have results. If you take my suggestions, they may be more positive than if you don't. If you don't take my suggestions, that might be made more negative than if, in fact, you took my part. But I'm not responsible for your actions, you are. You hear my suggestions, you hear the knowledge that I'll communicate, you hear the experience that I've experienced, and if you want to perhaps attempt to have an experience like that, you'll do what I did. And if you don't, you'll get something else. It's kind of like baking a cake. There's a recipe, but it's a recipe for that particular cake that I've baked. If you change it and put two eggs instead of one or chocolate instead of vanilla, you will get a different cake and it might just be fine for you, but it won't be the cake that I baked. I'm going to be talking about the cake that I baked. <clears throat> this is about wisdom. Knowledge in the milieu of prayer. Knowledge in the milieu of prayer. Taking actions and making mistakes and with our consciousness, seeing that we make a mistake and correcting our actions so that we make less mistakes and less dramatic mistakes and our life improves. Consciousness is the key to happiness. It's not the only key. There are two, actually, foundational keys to happiness. One is to know better, and the next is to do better. I have found it impossible to know accurately without help. 
I have found it impossible to implement in a healthy way without accountability. I need a teacher to know and I need a guide or accountability partner to stay in healthy behavior. That's the key to happiness. To have a sense of meaning broader than ourselves, knowing that, and a contribution to the people around us, knowing and helping. Those are the conclusions of the Harvard happiness studies that have been conducted over the last 20 years, coming out of positive psychology in the 90s. Harvard has a department of happiness. They have said, if you, anybody who wants to be happy, that's their goal, will never be happy. Wow, that's in your face. Anybody who wants to be happy, and that's your primary goal, will never be happy. Because happiness is a byproduct, not a product. Happiness comes from having a meaning broader than ourselves. Notice how ambiguous in a way that is, how universal that is. We're not talking about God and spirituality here. We're talking about human psychology, probably theology, but in the broadest and most inclusive terminology. A meaning broader than ourselves, a context in which we have an explanation of our life, and then contribution to those around us. That is, like the St. Francis prayer says, becoming a channel. A channel that is fluid, a channel that is filled with grace, with life, with power, with energy. The channel itself is the conduit. I love the image of a lantern. This practice of consciousness improvement brings energy and light into the channel and I become a lamp, a lantern. And the light in me grows. The light is not me, but the light in me grows and I can stand then on the path that I walked shining the light that I have received and shining it on the path that I walk so other people can walk that path. The great image. Because it allows me also just to be the lantern and not the light. Just to be the lantern and not the driving force behind somebody's behavior. I'm detached from that, but I'm invested in it in the way that I want the light to shine on that path. So I stand by that path. So people can walk the path that I walked in the light of my experience and have their own experience, not my experience. So take a deep breath and let's pray the serenity prayer a prayer for wisdom, a prayer for discerning, 
What can I influence? What can't I influence? What is my responsibility and what is not my responsibility? How can I be helped and how can I help other people? God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. So as I mentioned, today's journey is going to take a look at reality. What is reality? Now, it's going to be a very superficial look. I do lots of other events, not the least of which is a weekly workshop where I take a group of people through this 12 steps in an all-inclusive manner. No matter what your addiction, if you have any addiction at all, and if you don't even have an addiction, but you want to walk a spiritual path and have a spiritual awakening, that's the promise of the 12 steps. Step 12 says, having had a spiritual awakening. So the 12 steps of a 12-step program confirms the promise and the purpose of the 12 steps. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. The 12 steps were created to deal with alcoholism and then fostered and distributed to deal with all other addictions. But the 12 steps is a human organic methodology of transformation, of waking up. One of the Russian philosophers, Gurdjieff, said, all human beings are asleep dreaming that they're awake. I love pithy, P-I-T-H-Y, succinct wisdom sayings like that. All human beings are asleep, dreaming that they're awake. 43 years old, I did not know that I was an alcoholic. 48 years old, I didn't know that I didn't know about spirituality. 50 years old, when I had an exposure to Father Thomas Keating, and I didn't know, despite having had a spiritual awakening two years earlier, I didn't know. And I had a malformed, unhealthy concept of God, the power other than myself, that mystery. And I saw that my concept of God was the very impediment to my relationship with the mystery. I'm not a quick learner. It's taken years, decades, lots of effort. I learned about prayer. We don't pray to change God. Goodness, then why do we pray? Well, the underlying assumption is God as a belief system. You may or may not believe in that. Underneath the centering prayer practice, underneath the step 11 meditation practice, underneath the universal practice of prayer is a belief that there is some type of a reality that we call God. It's a symbol of that reality. You might want to look up the word ineffable, I-N-E-F-F-A-B-L-E. It just means uh, some reality that can't be named. That's what we're talking about. So we 
rather than have clumsy words, we are very efficient and we use the word G-O-D. The word is not God. The word G-O-D is not the reality. It's a symbol of the reality. What is the reality? Yeah, that's going to be one of the concepts that we explore today, in a, in, again, in a very superficial way. In my weekly one-year workshops, we spend at least a month, maybe six weeks on steps two and three, our concept of God and our relationship with that reality. What are the differences between prayer and meditation and contemplation? There are absolutely, from my definition and from my experience, very clear, diametrically different definitions of each of those, making it very clear as to those are tools that we use. Centering prayer, a form of contemplation, as Father Keating puts it. Contemplation is a universal ancient practice. That's what the Buddhists have done for five to 10,000 years. That's what the Christian monasteries are all about, contemplation. And Father Keating calls centering prayer the first rung on the ladder of the contemplative practice. Centering prayer is a contemplative practice, part of what I call intentional consciousness. I coined that phrase to capture this whole genre of prayer and meditation and contemplation and centering prayer and vipassana meditation and mindfulness and transcendental meditation. And you've heard all of those words. And there's lots of confusion. Perhaps today we'll help clarify some of that confusion. The most important word in my vocabulary every morning is what is the invitation? What is the invitation today? What is the invitation for this week, this month, this year, my life? Now, I don't get grand every morning, but probably once a year, I sit down with that question about next year and my life. I'm in that process right now. I actually spend three months doing that, October, November, and December, in anticipation of the new year. Challenging all of my activities. What is my purpose? What is my invitation? What is my destiny? What is my competency? Bill Wilson, in one of the commentary on the traditions in Alcoholics Anonymous, said, the good may be the enemy of the best. Wow, there's another pithy wisdom saying. Let's unpack it for just a minute. The good may be the enemy of the best. Each of us, uh, and this is a select group, nobody comes to this three-hour workshop that isn't already awake and a seeker. Every one of you is a seeker and you've had lots of knowledge and you have lots of experiences. This is a very self-selected group and you're good at many things, but your best at one or two things. To the extent that you're doing a lot of good things, you're not doing what you're best at. My wife and I, about six years ago, sold our family home of 40 years. And so we had an opportunity to challenge everything in our lives, both in terms of the freedom from the, the, the big house, but also the freedom of the financial that came out of that. 
and I had to take a look at my activities. I listed them all, all of the activities, and I was retired, but I had a lot of activities. I'm involved with different boards and different events and different things, and because I have lots of knowledge and lots of exposure and lots of gifts. And I ranked them one through five, one being my 12-step work, which is the single most important experience I've ever had in terms of an organic, effective method of transformation for everybody. I've never seen it fail. And then lots of other things, as I mentioned, and I, I categorized them one through five. And I eliminated anything that wasn't a number one. It took me three months to do that. But this is what I'm talking about in terms of discernment. This is what I'm talking about in terms of meditation. This is what I'm talking about in terms of contemplation, is having enough consciousness to review and make decisions based on spiritual principles. It was so effective and freeing. It took three months. But I was focused by the beginning of the next year only on the number one, that every year at this time, I spend three months preparing for the next year, looking at even the number one and giving it assignments one through five so that I see where I want to spend my energy and my focus in terms of my priorities and my competencies and my invitation. That's the key word. Every morning I use that word. What's the invitation? You hear the words, we small voice, and I've heard them for so many years. And eventually, uh, probably three years ago, five years ago, I lose track. I challenged it. I challenged most everything in my life if I am conscious enough. But I challenged that, we small voice. Wow, I've never seen where it came from. I've never validated that it's a legitimate translation. We small voice. I've heard it, it sounds so good. It has a lot of meaning and it's very effective in terms of a meditation and application, the we small voice, that intuition, that inspiration. But I, I did some research on it. I, I don't have a language skill, but I have a skill of looking at different books to research and get underneath the underneath the underneath. And the original Aramaic was mistranslated into we small voice. Actually, the words are tiny whispering sound. Now that sounds the same, but it's really different when you unpack it. Tiny. That's why we go into silence. Whispering. That's why we listen carefully. Sound. It may not be words. It may be a feeling. It may not be words. It may be a sensation. But there's an awareness connected to the sound that is guidance, I believe, from the spirit. The word spirit comes from the Greek spiros, S-P-I-R-O-S, which means breath. The breath of God, the breath of the wind, breath. 
not anything that you can describe or have an image of, but you can experience it and you can be aware of it. What is the invitation? So one of the techniques that I've come to really appreciate in oh, a very fancy word, pedagogy, meaning the study of learning, is that getting information is really good, but it's useless if it's not got a place to reside. So asking a question is even more important. My job is to help people ask the right question. My job isn't to ask them the right question. My job is to help them ask themselves the right question and to then get some information that's accurate based on either science or experience. And then to take some action. I was asked the question back in 1940, <laughs> 1984, um, what is your history with alcohol? They didn't ask me if I was an alcoholic. They just asked me to do an inventory of my drinking, my relationship with alcohol, going back to my very first use. And as I wrote that out in bullet point and then read that out to a group of people, the key was writing it out and then reading it out. Listen, writing it out personally and then reading it out to a group or another person, this happened to be a group, I had an experience with it. And once I had that experience, it raised other questions. Oh, I have a drinking problem. At age 43, with the background I've described to you of self-reflection and knowledge, philosophy, psychology, and theology, graduate educations in all three of those disciplines, seven years of silence in a monastery, if I fail to mention that, it was silence. Very reflective time. And at age 43, I'm clueless. And I didn't know that I didn't know and I couldn't see that I didn't see that I had a drinking problem. This is not here to talk about drinking problem or addiction or 12 step. I'm sharing my experience and my journey with this pedagogy. How to learn. Ask or be asked the right question. Get some accurate information. Take some very specific action. Pay attention to what happens as an experience and be willing to be open to hear the next question. It's a dynamic that actually doesn't have an end. Einstein said, the consciousness that created the problem cannot be the consciousness that solves the problem. You recall, I'm talking about here intentional consciousness. I haven't read any of Einstein, but I pick up these wisdom sayings because I like them and they have meaning and hopefully they have meaning to you and I transmit them. The consciousness that created the problem cannot be the consciousness that solves the problem. And in our technology world, we know, all right? Misinformation input, misinformation output. With a defective mind, I cannot create a healthy result because my defective mind will corrupt it. 
So I need a new approach. And I was introduced to what this man called a set-aside prayer. Prayer isn't words that are to express, to tell God what to do, or to, in fact, change God. I'm very clear on that. Prayer is a personal consciousness and aspiration that changes me. Whatever the reality God is, it can't change. It can't come. It can't go. It can't say yes. It can't say no. It can't reward. It can't punish. Whatever it is, it's an absolute and static, infinite reality having no beginning and no end. And because it's infinite and we can express the word, but we can't understand it because we're finite by nature. I had a beginning and I will have an end. I'm finite. I'm material. And by definition, material is corruptible. The moment I was born, I began dying. Yeah, it's the way my spiritual director talks. We're candles that are burning. And eventually there'll just be a puddle of wax. That's a meditation that will bring some very sobering thoughts and maybe even refine your invitation. Life is like a bank account. We spend it every day. Eventually, there is nothing left to spend. How do you want to spend your life? Wonderful meditations. In the monastery, we had a monthly retreat for an entire weekend on death to keep things in perspective. This was the inevitable pit each one of us will fall into. To the extent that I have knowledge and experience and hold on to that, I'm prevented from having any new knowledge and experience. And this man who became my guide in 1988 looked at me knowing the summary of my background, as I mentioned to you, and look up at my picture now. He said, you have a lot of information, Herb, but you have very little transformation. I mean, it was that gesture that just stunned me because I got it immediately. You have a lot of head knowledge from all your background, but your behavior is not very transformed, in fact. You think you're a Renaissance man, but you're actually a Neanderthal. He was very direct. It was very helpful. He didn't mean it to be hurtful, and it wasn't hurtful. It was very helpful. So I ask you to join me in a prayer for intervention, a consciousness that you don't know that you don't know. And you can't see that you don't see. Even hearing these words, you might not believe it and you might even resist it. And it's okay because willingness is really the key. When I look back over my journey, I was willing to go to the monastery and I was willing to leave. I was willing to go into psychology and I was willing to give it up. I was willing to go into AA and do the work of AA. But at some point I realized 
that I hadn't found what I was looking for when I heard somebody else share their life and I measured mine by theirs and I didn't have what they had and I wanted it. Willingness is the key. At least the willingness to be willing and I would again invite you to join me out loud if you choose to or quietly if you want to pray the prayer or not at all if in fact that's not your style of walking your path of consciousness i have no rules god please set aside everything that i think i know about myself my brokenness my spiritual path in you for an open mind and a new experience with myself my brokenness, my spiritual path, and especially you. So reflect on these questions. Where is my life not working? How effective have my efforts been? Do I really want to change? What change would I like? And again, that most favorite question, as I've spoken about, what is the invitation? Pick one or pick all of them. Write a word or a, a phrase or a sentence. It's much better that you <clears throat> write it it seems to concretize it, at least in my experience. And it's something then that I can go back to and elaborate on if I choose to. This is a form of meditation. You've already prayed twice, actually. The serenity prayer and the set aside prayer. You've already committed yourself to openness and to change and to be more conscious. Now I'm asking you to use your mind to think. This is meditation. Look it up in a dictionary. It says meditation is directed thinking. This is a Webster's Dictionary, not a spiritual dictionary. Meditation is directed thinking. More about that in a minute. I've directed your thinking to these questions. Let these questions be the lenses through which you look at your life. There's no right or wrong answer. There's just yours. There's no right or wrong answer. There's just yours. And it might be a thought and it might be a feeling. It might be an emotion. It might be a sensation. It might be an awareness. Different words have different meanings. The key, the key phrase in Father Keating's lexicon is a psalm. Be still and know that I am God. It comes from the Hebrew scripture, that whole book on Psalms, wisdom's sayings. Be still 
and know that I am God. That's the heart, he feels, of the intentional consciousness practice. And I'll use that when we come to. It's not only going to be sort of lecture presentation here, and we'll have some dialogue at some point. So if you have questions, I'll be able to at least attempt to uh, respond to them. Maybe not answer them, but I will respond to them. And then we'll have some practice. You've seen this image from the Sistine Chapel, either by being there or by looking at books on art. Michelangelo spent some time painting the Sistine Chapel, and this is an uh, image from Genesis in terms of creation. The hand reaching out from the right-hand side apparently would be the hand of the creator, and the hand reaching up is whatever the human is, being created. And notice there's a space in between. See, that space is the mystery for me. It's my interpretation when I look at that. But the real question is, is God necessary? Yeah. And, and, and what is it for me, G-O-D? What do I believe? Oh, I didn't ask you what you know. I didn't ask you what you think. I didn't ask you what you feel. I didn't ask you what you read. I didn't ask you what your mother and father said. I didn't ask you what your books said. I didn't ask you what your teachers said. I didn't ask you what your tradition said. I didn't ask you what the school said. Oh, good Lord, Herb. What did you ask me? I've forgotten already so many words. I asked you, what do you believe? Right now, here, as we're in discernment, a very fancy word about thinking in the milieu of prayer. We've prayed the set-aside prayer, or at least you've been exposed to that thought of the set-aside attitude. A willingness to be detached from my information and my experience and be given new information and a new experience to be carried to a place that I don't even know exists. That's totally my experience. I'm not being poetic, and I'm certainly not trying to be obtuse. I'm trying to describe my journey and my experience. I literally needed a new pair of glasses, but I didn't know that I needed a new pair of glasses. Lenses through which I could see accurately, not lenses that had been warped by my biology or by my sociology or by my family of origin or by my early educational experiences. I needed a new pair of glasses that were reground so that I could see reality as reality is and not as I projected onto it. That's the human journey. The human journey. Is God necessary? And what is it for me? Do I even believe it? What do I actually believe? And the second question that actually parted the curtain for me after that first question, which was easy for me to answer, 
what is my actual belief about God? I wrote out a theological paper on it, one page or two, and I read it to him and he said, wow, it's really, really deep and good theology and it's actually poetic. You ought to publish it, Herb. And then he sent me home to write an answer to the next question, which was like a handheld uh, can opener, leaving rugged, ragged edges. How do you behave in light of what you believe you believe? How do you behave? And he said, your feet tell you the truth. Your head has a tendency for delusion. Your heart has a tendency to be corrupt. Your feelings are ephemeral. They come and go because they're biologically, chemically oriented. But your feet never lie to you. Your behavior never lies to you. How you behave is who you are. How you behave is what you believe. How you behave is your character. It's very confrontational. I don't mean to offend anybody. I do mean to confront everybody. I heard a phrase again in a meeting three years ago or within the last three, be where your feet are. Oh my God, that's so, that's so be in the present moment, be where your feet are. Or an, uh, a variation on that, be where your feet and hands are. Again, how are you behaving? Because how you are behaving is who you are. It doesn't matter what you think and how you rationalize it and how you explain it. Underneath the underneath the underneath, my feet are objective. So this is about reality. God is the underlying assumption, whatever that is. What is it for me? Is it an infinite, immaterial being? This is where I come from. Infinite meaning having no beginning and no end. I don't understand that. My second grade teacher, I remember it. I was seven years old, Sister Alicia. She was teaching the, 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 the little second graders about God. I went to a Catholic school. And she said, God is like the ocean. And you're at the ocean, and when you are invited to come back home, you want to take the ocean with you, don't you? And all our second graders, yeah, we want to take the ocean with us. And you have a little bucket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can fill your bucket with part of the ocean. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you can't put the ocean in your bucket because the ocean is that big and the bucket is that big. I've never forgotten that. It's in whatever it is, capital I, whatever it is, it's incomprehensible because we're finite by definition. We had a beginning and we have an end. We are material and corporate being, corporal beings. Some of the mystics say there is no place that there is not God. If it is, it is everything. What is your choice? A decision of faith. 
Is it all-knowing? Is it unconditional love? That's a word I've been focused on for the last five years, attempting to unpack. What does it mean, unconditional? Oh, that means no conditions. Not possible for a material being, like any human being, by nature we're conditional. We cannot be unconditional. The only reality that can be unconditional is that reality which is absolute, which is infinite because it has no needs and it cannot change. Do I understand what I'm talking about? No, but I talk about it because I'm looking at an elephant at different times from different perspectives and describing what I'm seeing and feeling. It's the best I can do. I looked up the word altruism the other day. Dictionary is my best companion for my journey. Wonderful books, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous being my preferred textbook. But the dictionary is the, right there, a companion. And I looked up the word altruism. You want to try to understand unconditional love, you will embrace or look at at least and consider the definition of altruism. Doing something for somebody with no possible benefit for yourself. Wow. That's unconditional love from my standpoint. There's a book, uh, Tattoos on the Heart, by a Jesuit priest who created Homeboy Industries here in Southern California. And in that book, the book is fabulous about his story about taking the uh, East Los Angeles youth out of the gangs and putting them to work in a in a business to help them re-enter get some skills and re-enter civilization and society and, and have lives of meaning and happiness there's 300 employees in this group tattoos on the heart it'll open your heart but be that as it may in there he has this one line that is totally reinforcing what we're talking about perhaps he says Perhaps, he speculates, God created humans because God thought they would enjoy it. Ah, what a great meditation that is. Really? Of course. Why else would absolute create relative? Why else would infinite create finite? and the way we were created with the ability to know and the ability to make decisions. Those are the two characteristics that make us specifically human. And I'm saying that not, this is not random thoughts that I'm giving you. This is the heart of the intentional consciousness practice, how we are constructed as human beings, that we have a mind that knows and a will that makes decisions. Those are functions of our cortex and neocortex the things that make us specifically human. We have two other brains, the first brain being the brain stem, which manages our instincts at the biological level, the lizard brain level, the survival level. The second brain that was developed is the limbic system, which just makes us gorillas and dogs and cats, animals at the best, the limbic system giving us the emotions for survival of fight, flight, and freeze. 
But then, after millions and millions and millions of years beyond our calculation, there was this evolution to this cortex and this neocortex that allowed self-reflection and self-determination. Self-reflection in the sense of a mind that knows and knows that it knows, that can stand outside of itself and reflect on itself objectively. And a will that can make completely free decisions. I can go left, I can go right. I can show up for a workshop or I don't have to show up. And even if I show up, I can pay attention or not pay attention. I have complete free will. Well, do I? <laughs> How free am I? That's another question, maybe for another workshop. So my bottom line on whatever this absolute reality is that can't be named, I can describe it poetically as an uncreated, creative reality. Uncreated, but creative. Giving of itself and manifesting itself as reality. Hello, please hear that. Reality with a capital R manifesting itself as reality with a small r. That's a meditation that will be very productive for you. Reality with a capital R that creates and manifests as reality with a small r. So just from an image standpoint, is God like, and us like a fish in water? A fish is in the water, it doesn't know it's in the water. It is in the water and depends on its survival for staying in the water. Or is it like a wave that comes out of the ocean? It has a definite, let's say, a, one of those tsunami waves. It might last for three weeks and it might be 300 feet high. And the wave is not the ocean. But the wave is not, not the ocean. It rises out of the ocean and has a moment in history. And it can be measured and it has its impact. And then it recedes after a period of time back into the ocean. I am very clear that I am not God. My fourth step inventory showed me that in spades. I'm not even a Renaissance man. I'm a Neanderthal. I didn't know that I didn't know, and I couldn't see that I didn't see. And I really was humbled by my limitations, which was the point, by the way. I am not God, but in this context, I am not, not God. Interesting. Then who am I as a human being? A finite material being, we've covered that, of course. I have a body that doesn't make me any different than a stone. A stone has a body. But I have a mind that knows. And there's no other sentient being that has that capacity for self-reflection. And I have free will, and there's no other sentient being that has predetermination. I can determine whether I live in Los Angeles or live in New York. I can determine that freely and, may, and take the actions to implement that. 
I am a finite created reality. Now, the point of all of this is to give you the model and the basis for proceeding with our discussion on prayer and meditation and contemplation, knowing and uh, what our assumption is about the infinite and knowing what our, the reality is about ourselves. I'm a human being that has a body and a mind and a will. The mind is what I use in meditation. The will is what I use in contemplation. And the body in figuratively loose poetic sense is what I use for prayer. Prayer I speak, whether it's actual out loud speaking as I'm speaking now, or if it's just an internal dialogue. I'm putting into words or thoughts or feelings an intention. Prayer is about an intention. It's not about the words. The words are irrelevant. That's why it's wonderful to create your own words or to at least understand the words that you're mouthing. Humans have an ability to be robots, of course, because it's easier. We get into habits. I prayed the rosary for a long time in the monastery, but there was nobody home. It was a meaningless ritual that had no depth of even awareness, let alone feeling. But I have a mind that thinks and I have a will that decides. You'll see the application of these pieces as we go forward. One of the models that I use to really understand both human beings and human development and our journey as human beings is the Maslow hierarchy of needs, which I've converted to my own words and I've dropped the uh, reference to Maslow other than to tell you that's where I got it. He was a psychologist uh, in the early 20th century. And he talked about a triangle of human development as an organic process, obviously the physical development. If you want to be a spiritual person, you've got to acknowledge your body and get enough sleep. It's my, my current focus for biology because most people, especially with the technology that we have and maybe with the cultural stress that we have are not getting enough sleep. Herb, what's enough sleep? seven and a half to nine hours consistently daily. Ask yourself that question. Am I getting seven and a half to nine hours of sleep a night? Because if you're not on a consistent basis, you're sleep deprived. And when you're sleep deprived, you will compensate in some unhealthy way. You'll eat unhealthily, whether that's over or under, or just in unhealthy qualities or you'll have emotions that you won't be able to control or so many other manifestations of sleep deprivation. It makes us crazy, actually. That's why POWs were sleep deprived, to disintegrate their personalities so that in fact they could be manipulated. The next level, of course, is emotional 
care. You might have heard an announcement from Tanya that Dr. Alan Berger, who is a clinical psychologist and I are partners in presenting on emotional sobriety. Tomorrow we'll be doing a workshop on emotional sobriety. If you're interested, you can tune in. And if you don't have the time because of other plans, uh, it will be recorded so it will be available later on. It's such an important concept. Our emotions are critically important. They are signals to us of what creates our joy and what creates our suffering. Our emotions are signals, but we have to listen to them. We have to be aware of these emotions so that we can operate in a balanced way and navigate life. Life is like a river and sometimes it's smooth and sometimes there's a lot of rocks and white water and sometimes there's falls and we need to learn how to navigate. Emotional sobriety gives us the shock absorbers to deal with the speed bumps of life. How to have relationships with other people. These are all the foundational building blocks for a life of intentional consciousness. Again, all of this information and all of this approach and all of this explanation is all leading to unpacking intentional consciousness. We develop a conscience, meaning an ability to determine when we're disturbed or not. Those emotions of anger and fear and shame and guilt and secrets. We all have them. That's our human nature. Those are our survival instincts. But some of them have become habitual and bad habits or unhealthy habits. And when we do inventory of whatever method, we're there to do soul surgery, to cut out those cancers that if not eliminated, will metastasize and choke out our spiritual life, our conscious life, and eventually our very physical life. Improving our consciousness on a daily basis. Most traditions and teachers talk about a daily practice of meditation, and I call it a practice. like you go to the gym or like you ride a bicycle or like you play a piano. And then finally, self-transcendence. As I mentioned in the opening comments, we become a lantern so that the light is on the path for others to walk in the light of our, of our experience to have their own experience. Self-actualization is where I become conscious and have a conscience. Self-realization is where I'm improving that consciousness on a daily basis by practicing consciousness. Self-transcendence is allowing then the channel that I filled with grace and life and light and, and, and energy, that channel flow out and be distributed to the world around me to nourish and feed the world around me in an intentional way of contributing and helping. 
Am I a human being seeking a spiritual experience? Or am I a spiritual being seeking a human experience? I took that seriously. It's a great question. I took it into meditation. After several weeks of looking at all sides and making notes and doing some writing, I came up with an answer. Am I a human being seeking a spiritual experience or am I a spiritual being seeking a human experience? My answer was yes. Yes, I am. Two sides of the same coin. Maybe two words that describe the same reality. For me, the word spiritual doesn't have anything to do with divine. It has everything to do with relationships. A relationship with reality, a relationship with myself, and a relationship with others. Spiritual, for me, means relationship. Now, you can interpret it in many different dimensions, and that would be your journey. As I mentioned, Father Keating was my original teacher in Centering Prayer, and he talks about the core of goodness. This is an underlying assumption, whether or not it is your experience or even your interpretation. It's a wonderful, positive thought about who we are, a core of goodness. That's where the creator concept and the created concept comes in, a spark of the divine. Genesis, the first book in the Hebrew scripture, the Torah, says God created humans in God's image and likeness. God created them male and female. I'm quoting. It's a wonderful phrase. Especially for the women in the group, challenge yourself. Do you really want to continue using the male gender to refer to God? I have no problem if you say yes. But I want to wake you up to the fact that we've become robotic and conditioned in our culture and cultures before us because most of the spiritual literature was written by men. And I have no problem with that as long as you're aware that there is no gender to whatever this absolute infinite spirit is. Spiros, the breath of God. But we were born into our bodies, and now we're one of a kind. There's never been, there isn't currently, and there never will be another you. That's an awesome reflection in light of what I talked about in terms of the invitation. In the past, people have used fingerprint to identify individuals because they're that unique. Now we're using DNA even a more specific identification, because there never was, there isn't currently, and there never will be another replica of you. So what's your purpose? What's your invitation? You were raised in a family, and of course there's lots of healthy and unhealthy things that happens in families. The psychologists call it the impact of the family of origin. And lots of lots of uh, information now about PTSD, similar to the Vietnam vets, 
that they're analyzing the same dynamics and personality development in families where there was disability or mental illness or abandonment or addiction of any kind or misuse of any kind, PTSD. It doesn't excuse, it might explain, and it challenges us to seek resources and rehabilitation so that we can be improved human beings. Reframing our emotional experiences. And developing a positive attitude. If you're not familiar with positive education, you might want to positive psychology, you might want to read the book Flourish. That's the title of the book of the founder of the positive psychology group, Flourish. That's the word coincidentally without reading the book that I've used for my life for 30 years. My life flourishes. It's not without its difficulties. My wife of 52 years died three years ago. I went through a grieving process, may still be in it, and I think I'm on the other side of it. So we don't escape pain, but we again learn how to navigate. We have shock absorbers that help us deal with those speed bumps of life. That inventory I talked about is about becoming very clear that, and you've seen the Russian dolls, they call them nesting dolls. They're inside one another and they look identical. The Russian term is matrushka, which means mother. Interesting. I don't need to unpack that. I think it's intuitive. And as we unpack it doing inventory, we come to this point of core of goodness. One of the concepts that Father Keating says is that centering prayer in the contemplative practice will create the evacuation of the unconscious. Evacuation of the unconscious. That as we sit in silence, all of the stuff that's been developed over time for all of these various reasons will begin to soften up and float up to the surface of our consciousness. Thomas Merton himself writing in his many, many, many books, he had the phrase, meditation is the combustion chamber of the ego. Wow, I love that. Meditation is the combustion chamber of the ego. This, is, this practice is a, is a rite of passage. It's a rite of passage into our true full adulthood and our humanity. One of the images that I like to use is of nature. So a flower produces seeds so that new flowers can grow up that are similar to the flowers. Cats produce kittens or any type of animal that produces its young. And the young are variations from a genetic standpoint of the parents. Are humans like that? Yes, we produce babies that are genetically 
composed either of the mother and father primarily or of the family tree. That's where addiction comes from. My father, his father, his father, and his father, I go back five generations, were all bald. They were all white and they were all alcoholic. It's not my fault, it's my genetics, but it is my responsibility to deal with my alcoholism. So it might be true, it might be true, and I'm using this as sort of a model, that if in fact we are created, if that's my belief, then in fact, I've got the DNA of the creator, image and likeness. Is that what the mind and the will are? I think so, personally. I think it's a great translation of image and likeness. That I have the ability to know and then to create. I have the ability to understand and then to take actions. This is a diagram from Father Keating. We have consciousness, but we have an unconscious. That's that false self that the psychologists talk about. Even the Buddhists talk about. They're, they're not a religion, as I understand it. I'm a dilettante Buddhist, meaning I've studied it rather thoroughly, but I have not practiced, nor have I been trained in it. But it's a way of life very parallel to the 12-step process, a way of life. It's not a religion because they actually don't believe in God. They believe in the higher self. And the whole point of meditation is, in fact, to come to that true self. Dr. Berger has a wonderful way of phrasing it to neutralize the whole resistance to fourth dimension or spiritual conversation and vocabulary. He said, the best in us deals with the worst in us. Don't you just love that? The best in me deals with the worst in me. How neutralized is that? How not uh, guilt and shame producing is that? I have the worst and I have the best and I'm challenging myself to bring the best to manage the worst. And I think that's really the heart of emotional sobriety. I bring my cortex to manage my limbic system and my brainstem. I bring my thinking and my willing to manage my emotions and my instincts. That's what emotional sobriety is. That's what adulthood is. Most addicts, and quite frankly, most adults who are not conscious, allow their emotions to manage their lives or their instincts to run their lives. And of course, they suffer and the people around them suffer. So image and likeness is my true self, my core of goodness. And at the very core of my core of my core, this substratum of my own substratum, the life force of my own life force is this divine presence deep inside of me. Where can I find this reality, God? Not in outside, although, of course, nature reminds us. Not in outside, of course, some people remind us. Not in outside, of course, some architecture stimulates us to wonderful transcendental thoughts. But the only place that I can really find this reality is deep down inside of me. Deep down inside of me. The life force of my life force. And I like to think in terms of two words. And if you want to take those into meditation over the next several months, I really encourage it. 
magnetic and radiant. There is a center in me that is magnetic, drawing me into my center. And once I connect to that center, there's a radiant force that comes out from my center into me and through me to the outside world. Magnetic and radiant. Another model, again, using $100 words like transcendent. There is no place that there is not God. I quoted that mystic before. Thomas Merton said, God is that reality that has no circumference and whose center is everywhere. Yeah, you write it down. It's phenomenal. I think he paraphrased it from somebody else from the fourth century, but that's neither here nor there. The, 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 the comment, the thought is the insight. God is that reality that has no circumference. Oh, infinite. And whose center is everywhere. Oh, imminent. Another hundred dollar word. Imminence. That life force within my life force, that life force that is the underbelly of all life force of the created world. My artist who put these together surprised me one time. She, she knows my work. She knows this process. She's been living a very authentic spiritual life herself for 40 years. And she put this slide together in preparation for another event, and I was putting it up without ever having seen it. Now watch the slide again. Yeah, I just love it. Spirit everywhere. She just surprised me with that. And I thought, oh, that's, I just love stuff like that. So we've already said that prayer is not our words to change God. Well, then what is it? It's an intention for an intimate conversation. If you can reframe and become conscious when you're praying that that's what you're doing, whether it's asking or a humble submission or a surrender of whatever or wishing healing for other people, I don't dismiss the power of prayer. I don't understand the power of prayer. I know it has power. The power for me is that it changes me. I don't know what it does for the world, and I don't know what it does for other people, but I know that it changes me. To form a relationship is why I do it. Of course, what do I believe about God is the essence here, and that's really your decision. It doesn't matter what your tradition is. It doesn't matter what your fellowship is. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are. It's your responsibility and it's your decision. This is where you make conscious contact. Now notice I said conscious contact. The assumption here is that if you're created in the stream that we talked about in terms of genetics, that you're always in constant contact. That's the underlying assumption of that 
comments that I was making about the genetics. If in fact you believe that you've been created, then you represent and are a replica of and a reflection of that which created you. That's biology, that's sociology, that's psychology, that's logic. It may or may not be your theology, it is mine. But in this process, we come to establish conscious contact. And it is a play on words. The reality is, whether you know it or not, is constant contact. God is, and God is everything, and God is everywhere by its very nature. That, that's an assumption, and you may or may not relate to it, and you may not agree with it. It's just, I'm just putting out my thoughts and my assumptions. Maybe it will help you with yours. But then what is meditation? And I gave you a preview of that when I talked about looking it up in a dictionary. I recommend that, looking up in a dictionary, because it will reinforce the words that I'm using. Meditation is directed thinking. Why do we do it? There's many reasons. Lots of statistically valid studies have been done. If you meditate, you will have better health. It will impact your biology. If you meditate on a consistent basis, you will have better emotional health. It will impact your psychology. If you meditate on a consistent basis, depending on your intention and your purpose, you will have spiritual help. What does that mean? A consciousness of a relationship with reality. We call that theology. Literally, the study of God, theos. But notice I said thinking and listening. Directed thinking. The man who helped me the most cracked the code when he said, we ask God to direct our thinking, then we begin thinking, trusting that our thinking is in fact a response to our prayer. God, please direct my thinking is the prayer. Then I begin thinking about my day and considering my plans for the day. And I listen to my thinking. I've never heard God speak at all, at all, verbally, to me, audibly, to me, through my ears. But I have heard that tiny whispering sound in my heart, in my gut, in my senses, in, in the thoughts that I get, in the images that I get, in the imagination that I'm allowed and I pay attention to. Now that's called discernment also, but it makes it so easy. It's not mysterious any longer. It's not mystical any longer. It's a very practical human practice. Oh, I listen to my thinking. That's why I'm silent. And I try to focus and contain my mind. The Buddhists call it the monkey mind the monkey that swings from tree to tree to tree to get the bananas in the various trees. The monkey mind always searching, always thinking. We can't quiet our mind. That's silliness. 
We can't quiet our mind or shut off our mind. We can contain it. You may have read about the fires that we have in California. They're awful. Fires that are in the hills and out of control are just awful. But fires in my fireplace and fires in my stove are fabulous. They warm my body and they cook my meals. Fire out of control is destructive. Fire contained is productive. My mind out of control is chaos. My mind contained and directed in the discipline of meditation can be quite productive. I think about my day. I think about my week. I think about my life. I think about my purpose. I think about problems. And then I allow my mind in the milieu of prayer to be the transmission of the message, the medium of the message, so that I can discern through inspiration or intuition or instinct, depending on the level, whether it's coming from the mind or the heart or the gut, what might be that tiny whispering sound that might be the direction of the universal life force that underneath my personal life force and is directing me in the flow of the river. So I've got one other slide here to talk about meditation. Some people find that uh, in particular moments they need to sit and read something that's inspirational. It's called Lexio Divina in the Catholic tradition. Lexio meaning legere, coming from the Latin word to read. Divina, of course, divine. So you take a passage from the Bible or from your own spiritual literature or quite frankly from any place that inspires you poetry, for instance, and you read a word or a phrase and then you just shut the book and you hold it. What thoughts, what feelings does that word or phrase inspire in you in relationship to what you want to think about? And then when you've chewed it enough like gum and it's stale, you pick up another word or another phrase and you chew on that for a while. And perhaps you've set a timer for five minutes or for 30 minutes. It doesn't matter how long you want to meditate, but commit to a time, but have a timer so that you're not distracted by looking at the time that you're focused on listening to your heart or listening to your head or listening to the core soul of your very being as you're attempting to hear the tiny whispering sound as a response to your question i need help i need i need help i need an ability to resolve the problem or an issue or to deal with a life speed bump. With my mind, I think and I pay attention. And with my will, I look for guidance and it's my intention. Different words, different operations, different methodologies. I'm reading and thinking. I'm paying attention and thinking. I'm paying intention 
what is the direction that I'm inclined to go and inspired to take action about? Of course, distraction is the bane of all existence of meditators, that monkey mind. Inventory will help you determine the sources. If in fact you're behaving poorly, perhaps you need to change some of your behavior. If you have resentments that haven't been resolved, perhaps you need to do that. It will block you from the spirit. I, I, I look at the spirit as light, the sunlight, and um, the obstacles in us, the distractions in us as clouds. And the clouds block the light in me. Therefore, I need a process to remove the clouds, those obstacles. Some people find inventory through a step four in the 12-step process. Some people find confession in a tradition helpful. Some people find therapy helpful to remove those obstacles and or maybe a combination of all of them. But the whole uh, purpose is to have improved consciousness, a communication of union, communion, a communication of union. All right, so I'm gonna pause here and I think it would be good for us to have um, a little Q&A and then maybe a little practice on the meditation. When you talked about the, um, the triangle with body, mind, and will, I wondered uh, where you fit soul into yeah. of this and you yeah. did mention soul later in your yeah. presentation but i often see that yeah body mind spirit or body mind soul instead of will could you talk about that please yeah yeah it's a really good question thanks for that observation um the soul would for me would be the anima or animating force underneath the triangle so it's the life force that's there the body and the mind and the will are functions of the soul. So the entire triangle, quite frankly, is the soul, if you will. But again, that, that assumes people believe in a soul, but I'm going to give it a different word just because there might be um, a synonym that, that would help people, and that is the life force whatever you call it, soul might be a person, a person might have resistance to that term because it comes out of a culture or a tradition. But the animating life force, it's an equivalent uh, reality. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes, thank you very much. Herb, I just want to say that this is the first, I feel so emotional. You broke through on something, but it's your lecture. It's, so informative. It's what I've been seeking my whole life, literally. Yeah. And I'm wordless. I have nothing to say. I have no questions to ask. I'm just so emotionally touched. Thank you. Well, thank you for getting on and witnessing to the impact of what we're doing here on you. 
because that very witness will have an impact on other people. So thank you so much for your journey. The first question is, is you talked about the clouds in the way of consciousness. Yes. And in my experience, um, going on a medication to help with my anxiety and depression has led me to uh, have more access to spiritual awakening. Um, and a lot of people, uh, I, I kept trying to use the steps in the therapy and the prayer and the meditation, and I wasn't able to, I just couldn't, there's just too many clouds. Um, and I've been working for a long time. Anyway, I would like to hear your comments about medication in this process. Uh, if that's the biology, if that's the spirit, what that is, because it affects me so spiritually when I do it. Second question, if you want to address either one or not, um, is uh, how do I get a spiritual teacher? How do I get a yes. spiritual director? How do I not elevate them to the status of a guru where I'm worshiping them, yes. but I'm, 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 I'm moving spiritually because I have an accountability partner, but I don't know if I have a spiritual teacher. Thank you. Yeah. Um, wonderful questions. Um, medication. I'm not a doctor or a pharmacist or a psychiatrist or psychologist. I am not certified in anything, but I have some experience and some opinions. Uh, medication is incredibly important for people who need medication. If you're a diabetic, don't spend much time in prayer for your diabetes. Go to a doctor and take insulin. If you have a broken leg, don't go to church. Go to emergency ward, all right? So medication is incredibly important where there is a chemical deficiency. And that relevancy of that in the predominant population is about depression and antidepressant. Um, there are psychological ingredients to depression, but there are also biological, physiological ingredients to it. Those kind of separations need to be sorted out with professional resources, and it might be necessary to have medication for both purposes on a short-term basis and or a long-term basis, especially if it's a physical deficiency. Medication can, in fact, stabilize the balance of the system, both the mm, brainstem and the emotional system, so that the cortex can function effectively. The problem here is that psychiatrists and the dispensers, medical doctors of prescriptions, do so too quickly and too generously without uh, much discernment or evaluation and without much monitoring so that it can in fact be productive in the beginning and then counterproductive as it goes forward. Um, bottom line, there is absolutely a role for medication in human development and it can either facilitate or interfere with depending on whether it's healthy and needed or not. I'm not sure that helps, but that's about as good as that gets in terms of my general approach and experience to it. Yeah, that's okay. Thank you. Is that okay? Then the other question concerning a teacher. That is a wonderful question, and it's a probably fairly easy to answer. If you're in a 12-step program, you look for a sponsor and or a step guide that has had a spiritual awakening through the 12 steps. 
If you're not in a 12-step program, call your local retreat center and ask for their recommendation of a list of spiritual directors that have been trained. Um, I, in my early recovery, right around 1990, I went through a training for spiritual director as a three-year training process. I, I never had any uh, anticipation of being a spiritual director. I wanted to be a better sponsor, and I knew that that process would help me be a better sponsor, as it did. Uh, interestingly enough, as it turns out, it also opened me up to being able to help people who were not in a 12-step program, because now I'm qualified to help people with spiritual direction. I myself had a sponsor in the 12-step program, but I had to get a step guide because my sponsor didn't know enough about the steps. So I hired a mechanic as a project manager to take me through the steps. It was a one-year process, a one-year project. It had a beginning and an end. They, the person didn't become my friend and didn't become my sponsor. But at the same time, during that journey, as that person opened up step 11 to me on meditation, and I met Father Keating, Father Keating became a spiritual director in the sense of a teacher through books and through his workshops and retreats. But I engaged a spiritual director on a one-on-one -on -one basis, the man I talked about from the uh, Thomas Merton experience. He was in that monastery for six years, and Thomas Merton was his teacher. Jim Finley is his name, and he is an author of many books, and you, you could read any of his books, F-I-N-L-E-Y, and um, you would have a benefit there. But he's the most intuitive and authentic spiritual person I've ever met. He has no knowledge of in experience with the 12 steps, but he has a deep, deep, deep connection to the spiritual journey. And so I see him once every month. I did for a long time, once every month. Now I see him probably twice a year or as needed if in fact I have a need to plug into some form of spiritual authenticity. Does that answer your question? Yeah, so, but what I heard you say is I can find spiritual direction through people, through their, through their writing. Oh, through their writing, certainly, it but... It have to be like a, but, a personal but, relationship. Oh, I see what you're saying. Uh, that's correct, actually. Sure, that's correct. I really recommend, however, that you have a person that you can connect to physically, whether it be uh, Zoom or phone or some other FaceTime mechanism, literally or, or physical, um, and you can get refer referrals through your local retreat center, usually. Okay. Yeah, yep. yeah. And it doesn't matter what denomination the retreat center, because if they're a legitimate resource, they will have a repertoire of re referrals in a broad uh, uh, array of traditions of people who have been trained as a spiritual director. Yep. That's a, that's a specific training that's, that's sufficient throughout the United States that you'll have no trouble finding somebody. Cool. All right. Thank you. Great questions. Well, let's take two minutes to pause here and think about in a meditation what you've heard, what questions you have, 
especially surrounding this underlying assumption of a power, an energy, a force, a life, an animating reality underneath the underneath the underneath. What is that for me? That's your question. What is that for me? What is it that I want and what is it that I need? What is it that I want and what is it that I need? I'm going to tap the bell three times to signal going into two minutes of silence. And then at the end of the two minutes, I'll tap it again. So you don't need to time yourself. Sit quietly with yourself with just that thought in mind. What's the underlying assumption that I have or want to have, that I have or want to have? What qualities, what attributes does it have that I need and want to have? Father Keating's seminal 
book is titled Open Mind, Open Heart. If you're interested in centering prayer, which I'm going to talk about now, that's a wonderful introduction to it. He's a brilliant author, and he's a theologian, and he comes from the Catholic Christian perspective. He's a monk. He's a Catholic priest. He doesn't let that get in the way of explaining centering prayer in a way that can be embraced by everybody, no matter what their tradition or no tradition at all. Open mind, open heart. Father Thomas Keating. At the same time, I was invited by Hazleton three years ago, 2017. Hazleton is the largest publisher of recovery literature in the world to write a book on meditation, which I did. And it's called Practicing the Here and Now, probably. But anyway, the first chapter of that book is an overview of the entire consciousness path. Prayer, meditation, contemplation, centering prayer, transcendental meditation, mindfulness. That first chapter would be, if you're interested, would give you a more detailed and structured approach to an understanding of what we're talking about here um, for our duration of this event. So what is centering prayer? It's a method. It's a method. It's a tool different than prayer different than meditation. It's called contemplation. And the word contemplation comes from the Latin templar or templare. Templar is a temple. Templare is to be in a temple. When you put a con in it, it means to be in. So a church is a temple. A sanctuary is a temple. A dedicated space is a temple. To be in that dedicated space, the house of God, if you will, temple, sanctuary, church, synagogue, they're all the same terms representing the house of the divine. All right? Contemplation is sitting in the presence of that divine. Thinking that I am the temple, I am the church, I am the sanctuary, I am the house of the divine. I am the sanctuary at the center of my being, at the core of my reality. God exists. Underneath my life force is the life force. That's the whole point of contemplation, is to sit in the presence of. Prayer is talking to God. Meditation is listening to God. Contemplation is being in the presence of God. And why do we do that? To improve that relationship. Well, again, we're going to come back to the mind and the will. The mind pays attention by acknowledging. That's a word that Father Keating uses. There's two. And the other word is consent. I acknowledge the presence of this reality. Just I, I don't know it. I don't understand it. I don't have a certified conviction of it. I'm just saying 
it is. And I, I mean it so much that I'm going to sit in the presence of it, not knowing it and not feeling it. I made a decision that it is, and now I'm going to act as if it's true. And it, that sounds very fairy dust, Disney, but it's not at all. It's the trust of my belief based on my faith. My faith is my decision that it is so, with no evidence. My mind accepts that decision, and that's my belief. And my feet operate as if it's true, and that's my trust. My faith is my decision. My mind is my acceptance, my belief. My trust is acting as if it's true with no conviction in the sense of evidence and no feeling in, sen in the sense of emotion. That's why the existentialists call it the leap of faith. Very dark, it's very thin, it's very non-substantial, non-material. There's nothing there, that's why it takes courage. Now, my own spiritual director said, after three months of daily practice, if you want to know whether it's having its impact on you, ask your wife how you're treating her. Oh, did you just hear that? What I said was, your feet will tell you. Your wife will see that you have become more sensitive. Your partner will see that you've become more sensitive, more considerate, more gentle, if in fact it's effective. And if it isn't, then go back and do an inventory on your practice. The two key words here, acknowledge the presence and consent to that presence. I'm going to give you an image that might help make it concrete for you, the words that I'm about to use for the next 30 or 40 minutes. Prayer is when I'm talking to God, not using words, but having the intention and the conversation and the relationship. Meditation is when I'm listening, not through my ears, but through my heart, through my gut, through my head, listening to inspiration and intuition and instinct, just listening to that tiny whispering sound. That's what meditation is, active listening. It's not silence. It's not emptiness. There's a lot of confusion here because the Buddhists, when they came over in the 50s and the 60s, they called that practice meditation. English was their second language. If they'd looked it up in the dictionary, they would have come to the word contemplation rather than meditation. Diametrically different. Meditation is the use of my mind. Contemplation is the use of my will. My mind thinks, my will decides and loves. I'm using will and love as the actions here. And so the image that I want you to hold as I'm discussing it with words and concepts 
They're sitting in the sunlight. If I sit in the sunlight, which I do every day after lunch, I have a very nice view of the Pacific Ocean and I sit on my patio and I get a little rest and I get a little warmth and I get a little color. I sit on my patio. I don't have to work hard at getting a little color. I sit in the presence of sunlight and I get tanned. I sit in the presence of the divine and I get changed. It's that simple, but it's also that mysterious. It's that intangible. That's why my own spiritual director said, after three months of daily practice, ask someone if they've observed that you've changed. What about distractions like meditation? There'll be distractions because that mind is a wily one. It never shuts off. We just have to park it. And so Dr. Uh, Father Keating, he's also a doctor of theology, uh, he talks about distractions that come up as any awareness other than the awareness of that presence. The focus and intention of centering prayer is the presence of God, awareness of the presence, and consenting to the presence. That key word, consent. Consent. With my free will, I say to the presence, have your way with me. Now, I'm not directing it, and I don't know what to expect. I'm willing to be taken to a place I don't even know exists. But I trust the process, and I trust the Spirit. And I sit in the presence of sunlight, expecting to be changed. Expecting to be changed. And, any, and a distraction is any awareness other than that awareness of the presence. That makes it really simple. A thought is a distraction. A feeling is a distraction. An image, a memory, they're distractions. An itch, that's a distraction. Any awareness other than the presence of God is a distraction. And so he says, use a sacred word. It's not sacred because of the nature of the word. It's sacred because you're using this word as your symbol of acknowledging the presence of God and consenting to the presence of God. I hope you're connecting what I've just said. The two words that Father Keating uses here for the practice is acknowledge that presence with your mind paying attention and consent to that presence with your will, giving it permission to have its way with you. Acknowledge and consent. And the word I choose is a symbol that represents those two actions. And I repeat that word to remind me of why I'm here and to center me in that presence. And when I'm centered back in that presence, I release the word. Father Keating didn't use the word mantra to represent this. He used the term sacred word because mantra is a particular word used by Eastern tradition as a repetitive robotic mechanism to give the mind something to do so that the soul can soar. 
So he avoided using the term mantra because the sacred word, we engage when we're distracted, but we release once we're not distracted. We're aware that we're aware of that presence and we release the word for five seconds until in fact we're distracted again, wondering if we're distracted because that wonder is a distraction. I hope you're smiling. It sounds complicated, but it's not. It's just human. It's very human. Now, he, he did acknowledge the Eastern and Buddhist tradition by saying some people have a practice of using the breath to recenter themselves and do that. If the word doesn't work for you, use your breath. Breathe in that magnetic force. Breathe out that radiant force. Breathe in the spirit, breathe out the distraction. And breath might be a wonderful way of returning to the presence. I tried it after I had a practice of using the word and I found that the breath was a distraction and I couldn't use it any longer. I couldn't use it, it wasn't productive for me. So I, I continue to use the word. My word is a simple word. It's a two syllable word. Some people recommend one, one syllable. God, love, or two words, father, mother, wisdom, energy. It doesn't matter what you choose. Keep it simple, probably keep it without any innate meaning. I do have a word that's a Latin word that has meaning for me, but it captures the acknowledge and the consent. It's fiat, F-I-A-T which is a derivative of facere, which means to make, in Latin, facere, to make. Fiat literally means thy will be done. With my free will, I'm inviting God to have God's way with me, fiat. I'm willing to be taken to a place that I don't even know exists. I'm willing to be taken. Fiat. I acknowledge the presence and I consent. And Father Keating says we rest in love. He has a wonderful image about the use of the word. He said, there's no violence here. It's like placing a feather on a cotton ball. Image that. Placing a feather on a cotton ball. The use of this word, the use of this breath, the effort in sitting in the presence, trying to be in the presence, knowing that you're distracted and hijacked by all kinds of life that's going on outside of you and inside of you. And we do the best we can. We resist no thought, we retain no thought. We react to no thought and we return gently to the sacred word. You will know that your practice is successful when you begin to see some visible signs. These are the litmus tests as to the 
viability and authenticity and impact and effect of your practice. Now, I recommend people start with one minute. Father Keating talks about 20 minutes. He talks about doing it in the morning and doing it in the evening, 20 minutes each. I do my sit in the morning. I'm not as faithful to my sit in the evening in the sense of a formal sit. But it's about you organizing yourself with your time schedule and what it is you're attempting to do. I recommend if you don't have a practice and you want one that you start with one minute. One minute of intentional consciousness, not prayer, not reading, not meditation. One minute of intentional consciousness, being in the presence of presence, consenting to let and invite it to have its way with you. One minute for 30 days in a row. If you, if you miss a day, start counting again. It might take you 90 days to get 30 days in a row. It might take you a year to get 30 days in a row. But once you get 30 days in a row of one minute, you will have a practice. And then if you choose to, and the Spirit invites you, you go to two minutes or five, and you allow the Spirit to guide the time, not your ego. But use a timer of some kind so that you're not distracted by looking at the timer, the clock, or the watch. Use a timer. The timer will tell you when you begin, the timer will tell you when you're done, and you don't need to worry about it. Set the timer for one minute. Set the timer for five minutes. The healing of our brokenness, as I mentioned, the combustion chamber of the ego and the evacuation of the unconscious, Thomas Keating and Thomas Merton. The self-esteem will become more authentic because that core of goodness will be repaired. That initial, that, initial, that initial spark of the divine, that image and likeness will be refurbished. You'll have a harmony within yourself and you'll be able to listen to others with much deeper understanding and compassion. And there'll be an overall sense of contentment and unity with the world. This is that communion that I talked about earlier. The communication and the union. The communication and the union that takes place. When we are consistent with this practice, we will experience a change. A change in the way we think and feel and behave. Notice our head, our heart, our feet. This is transformation, spiritual awakening done to me, not by me, but not without me. This is a co-creation. I love that word in the spiritual journey, co-creation. God can do it without me, usually doesn't. I can't do it without God. It's not possible. I've tried co-creation, my willingness and God's action, my willingness and action and God's grace. I, I can't explain the connection. It's a mystery to me. Which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Which comes first, the 
willingness or the action. I don't know. I've taken it into meditation. I've got some poetry that gives me some peace. It didn't answer the question. Listen to it. I was taken to a place of willingness. Hear the grace of that. I was taken to a place of willingness. Ah, but I was willing to be taken. And that's my cooperation and that's my willingness and that's my actions. Did it explain anything? No. Did it put me at peace? Yes. I don't have to understand it. As the man said, who is my spiritual director, when I was leaving his office, after three months of consistent behavior, pay attention to how you're driving on the freeway. Pay attention to how you treat retail personnel in the stores. You will be kinder. You will be more sensitive. You will be more conscious. Your feet will tell you the truth of your authenticity. This is the consent prayer. I would invite you to pray this prayer as we spend five minutes now in centering prayer. What do you mean, Herb? Isn't there any more teaching on centering prayer? Oh, I'm sure. There's lots more. Father Keating said it's really simple. Acknowledge the presence of God and consent to the presence. And then he wrote 10 books on it. <laughs> yeah, it's simple, but it's got lots of commentary in terms of the practice. And there's wonderful authors since Thomas Keating made it popular 40 years ago with his book, Open Mind, Open Heart. Cynthia Bourgeau is a woman who is an Episcopal priest and has written her own book on centering prayer. I recommend that. But I would like to experience centering prayer now. Not prayer, not meditation. Centering prayer is neither. It's contemplation. It's sitting in the temple space, in the presence of the power other than yourself, that life force that you can't name effectively, that you can't see, that you can't know, that you can't feel. Oh, my. This takes faith. This takes a decision. Is it? Is it? Is it real? I hope it is. I make a decision that it is. I don't know that it is. Still today, 32 years later. But when I stop and pause and look back over my shoulder at my life, I don't really care whether it is or not, because when I live this way with this consciousness and this consciousness practice, this practice of life, my life flourishes. Yeah, I use that word since 1988. I was four years sober at the time. My life didn't flourish at that time, four years sober. I mean, it was good. It got better when I stopped drinking, of course. But when I did the steps and then I met Father Keating and I began a practice of both meditation because I understood the step 11 and contemplation because I understood the practice of centering prayer. 
and I incorporated both as two sides of the same coin. My consciousness improved and my behavior improved and my life improved. And I had the tools, the shock absorbers to deal with the speed bumps in a very smooth, elegant and dignified way. Elegant, my life is elegant today. I've not used that word before. Just came to me right now. I'm going to ask you to pray the consent prayer. If you want to, you can pray it out loud or you just pray it to yourself. It's on your screen now. Those of you in a 12-step program will recognize the third step. doesn't matter where it comes from. It's the meaning of it, the intent of it. The intent is to consent to the presence that I'm choosing to believe is present deep down inside of me. I am the sanctuary. I am the temple. The spark of the divine is who I am. And that flame of love supports me in my life. It doesn't protect me from anything, but it supports me in everything. It is the life force of my life force. I'm going to invite you to pray that prayer and then I will lead you through a psalm. Be still and know that I am God, dropping a word or a phrase and repeating it. And I'm asking you to pray it out loud or to yourself the words that I use as I drop the words and we disappear into our deep center and I will ring the bell three times to signal the beginning of a five-minute silence. A silence in which we are just in sitting in the sunlight. Resting in love, resting in the sunlight, resting in the presence of the divine with the intention of and the consent of thy will be done. Have your way with me. I'm open in my mind. I'm open in my heart. Please join me in the consent prayer. God, I offer myself to you to build with me and to do with me as you wish. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do your will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of your power, your love and your way of life. May I do your will always. Sit comfortably wherever you are with your back straight your feet on the floor or cross-legged if you're in a, on a pillow or on the floor, your hands in your lap, breathing in and breathing out, breathing in the spirit and breathing out the distractions, breathing in the intention of thy will be done, breathing out the self-will, 
my will be done. Breathing in gently and quietly and deeply and breathing out in surrender, in consent. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am. Be still and know. Be still. Be.
Let's take a few minutes to answer some questions or concerns or comments about your experience with that. Well, with the whole uh, time that we've been together, but especially with this last five minutes in terms of an attempt at practicing centering prayer. Well, while you're thinking about that, the man who, uh, Jim Finley, who initially uh, broke the code for me on meditation after I had really understood that it was directed thinking, he said, without any knowledge of the 12-step process other than what he had learned from me, uh, he said, Herb, you're very task-oriented, and you've got a book, and you've outlined it, and you've highlighted it, and you've got a practice, and you've got it organized, and you have a place to sit, and you have a bell, and you have all of the accoutrements of a meditator, and you are going to be a meditator, and you are going to be a spiritual person. He said, you're very task-oriented, and meditation and centering prayer are not tasks. They're a process to be experienced. He said, think this thought, and I hope you can embrace this. Uh, and if you're not in a 12-step program, just listen to the meaning of the words. Step one in the 12-step program is that I am powerless, powerless over my addiction and powerless over reality, powerless over managing my life. And I need a power other than myself. That's step one, and he got it intuitively as I explained my step work and my transformation and spiritual awakening as the result of the step work. But he got intuitively the meaning and the impact of step one. And he said, think this thought, Herb, you're as powerless over your spiritual life as you are over alcohol, having no power at all. You are as powerless over your meditation practice as you are over alcohol, Herb, having no power at all. Sit in the presence of power, humbled by your powerlessness, open to receive the gift of grace. Oh, my God. He said, you're responsible for the effort. The results are none of your business. Father Keating made the comment, which I pack into this teaching. He said, there's only two mistakes that you can make in meditation and centering prayer. It, 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 he keeps it so simple. There's only two mistakes. The first is don't show up. The second is leave early. Oh my God, could it be that simple? Yes, it is. Show up, set your clock, set your time, whatever your commitment is, whether it's one minute or one hour, it doesn't make any difference. Be faithful to your commitment. Don't leave early and pay attention in between. But you're responsible for the effort and the results are none of your business. Do not judge your sit. Oh, that's so just not like us as human beings. We evaluate it. Oh, my sit's not as good as herbs. Or my sit's not as good as my spiritual directors or my sponsor or my friend or my spouse or my partner or the books that I read. No, don't, 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 don't do that. That judgment is not healthy. Evaluation is healthy, but judgment in that tone is not helpful. Constructive, not destructive. A key word in the journey of 
human development, positive thinking. It was the conversion of the whole industry in the late 90s, positive psychology, not focused on abnormal psychology, but focused on normal psychology. Not the deviations, but the focus on what makes us human, what makes us healthy, what gives us optimal living. That's the book I mentioned, Flourish, by the person who reoriented psychology, as, as I understand it, from abnormal psychology to positive psychology, what makes us truly human and having an optimal life. My question is, as I was sitting in the Centering Prayer, you've, you've drawn a distinction. You said, um, what word did you use? You, did not, you didn't say discernible, diametric. You said there's meditation, uh, which is directed thinking. You said there's contemplation, which is um, direct divine, love. Sitting with the divine is what I heard. Yeah. Um, and then uh, prayer is uh, talking to God. And so mm -hmm. sitting with the prayer, be still and know that I am God, to me is all three mixed into one. Is that right? Yeah, I was like, wait, am I contemplating? Wait, am I meditating? Wait, am I praying? Wait, okay, thank well, you. It's a, it's a good question. Lots of good questions. Lots of good consciousness. And don't spend a lot of time in it when yeah. you want to be in centering prayer. Yeah. If you want to be in prayer and meditation, knock yourself out. But if you want to be in contemplation, release the questions. Yeah. yeah. But My you're next right. question is would you, you said reality? No, you said the flame of love supports me. It doesn't protect me. I'd love to hear more about that someday. I'll but bet. then my final question is, would you say that reality is love or is reality neutral? Is reality something to be scared of? I know that might be too Great much. Great questions. No, no, no. Those are all good questions. Yes, ma'am. You, you, you're asking the right questions. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> yes, those are really good questions. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Yeah, thank you. I, I am having a lot of feelings, and I had a lot of feelings come, come up as we sat down to do the contemplation part of this practice together. And for me, it was such a relief to feel this true feeling. It's almost like the dialing in feeling, like that's what a feeling is, but it's overwhelming. And the instruction was, if I'm correct, to when I feel the feeling to also go to the word, you know, the sacred word. But I feel like, oh, but the feeling is good. It's like the whoosh into that. It's the whoosh that sort of brings me in. Does that make sense? Is that... Yeah, it makes sense. It's just a distraction, though. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And as a human being, we love feelings. Oh, my God, especially the positive ones. And we love to hold them and relish them and amplify them. Yes, yes. And, 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 and that's a distraction. I thank you very much. That answers my question. Yeah. Feelings in the spiritual life are a trap. Especially for... Uh, the addicts of us. If we're addicted to anything, it's about feelings. Thank you so much. Great question. I, I've been meditating for quite a few years, you know, setting the timer and trying lots of different meditations and always thinking I'm not doing it right when I hear someone else talk about how they do it. Um, but I was, I thought, well, I'll try this. I'll try being open and willing. And, um, 
it was it was just an incredible experience for, for you to, to have that sentence, be still and know that I am God, and for you to shorten it, yeah. and for me just to be present. And I ended up with this B, that that, it just happened to, that, that I think this, maybe this distraction to think that that is my word, but my life of doing and accomplishing, checking things off, and I've always wanted to know how to just, just be, and I thought it was impossible, I can't. And I had, I, I, I had an experience of being. And then afterwards, I thought, uh, what did I think? Something like, I did my best, which meant that I didn't judge and I didn't assess how I did. So I, I want to thank you for, for, for that experience that maybe I could continue yeah. with that. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. I have modeled my teaching style and protocol on my own spiritual director. If anybody has exposure to Jim Finley, they will notice that I start the meditation in the same way he showed me way back when. And that is with the be still and know that I am God and then dropping the words and then using the bell because it brings me down into my center. Mm -hmm. Just like you described. And that's the point of it. And, it. and it works for me. That's how I do it. So thank you very much for acknowledging that. I'm on a roll <laughs> with the 12 steps yet again. And uh, on step four, and on page 59, as you well know, it says, half measures availed us nothing. We stood at the turning point. We asked his protection and care with complete abandon. And I, I fought with that um, because stuff happens in life and I don't see any miracles of the body being protected necessarily and you said it um, and I'm not sure what it was doesn't protect me but it supports me mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so um, could you shed some light on my confusion around that well, I don't think it's confusion. I think you're actually looking at words and seeing the potential contradiction. So I think you're very clear, actually. Um, and um, philosophers and theologians and thinkers for uh, ever, five, 10,000 years of written history, have struggled with the problem of evil, the problem of pain, the problem of God and God's will, and is there a plan? And so your question's right on the money. It's at the heart of human discernment. My, it's a mystery, but my answer to that addressing it is, I was given free will, and I believe in a loving, unconditional loving God. In fact, so unconditionally loving that God does not interfere with my free will. I can make decisions that hurt me and others because I have free will. That's how I'm built. There are earthquakes because that's how the world is built. Tectonic plates move. There are volcanoes and tsunamis as the result of geological construction, the way the world was built. This is what is. There is homicide and genocide because people have free will and mental illness. 
That's the way the world is built. When a deer takes a drink from the lake, it's really good for the deer. When the mountain lion eats the deer at the lake, it's really bad for the deer, but it's really good for the mountain lion. So it's really kind of relative. Reality just is what it is. And it's my job to discern reality and to accept reality and to adjust to reality. I'm not going to be protected from drunk drivers. But I'm going to be supportive in being responsible to pay attention to my own driving so that I don't put myself in harm's way. Does that help? Not completely. I guess it's good for me to still have questions. Well, it is, but if we feel that if there really is a God that's good and loving, nothing bad will happen, we want to challenge ourselves. Yeah. We just really want to challenge ourselves because it's, it's a bit of Disney fairy tale. Right. Yeah. Yep. Because reality just is reality. And human beings are material. And people are born and people are born with defects. And people are born and people die. And some people die old and some people die midway and some people die young. And life is not fair, close quote. So the question in the big book, we asked his protection and well, care I, with complete abandon. Yeah. Um, so Bill's using a word there. I don't know what he meant by protection, but I'm, I'm not going to try to discern that or, or differ with it or explain it. I'm explaining my approach to reality, not Bill's approach to that, that sentence. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yes. Thank you. I, my question is, um, how, what, what could I expect to be different about group contemplation from individual contemplation? Yeah, yeah. So I don't know how to describe that for you, but I'm glad you raised the question because, of course, I indicated that I do a group twice a month on the second and fourth Wednesday of the month, and lots of people like it. Um, it wouldn't be something that I would go to on my own personally because I don't get a lot from a group experience. I get much more from my personal experience. I like the group experience for two reasons. One, I'm helping other people, but also I get the feedback of possible insights or what's working and what's not working. That's the benefit I find in group. But there are some people that find that group really supports their individual practice and so that's really the sense I get of it as a difference. But you're the one that would have to determine your experience from both of them to see which is better for you and what supports what and whether what, uh, the group is necessary or, and helpful or not. I'm a really practical guy and I ask the question all the time, does it help? If it helps, continue it. If it doesn't, then change it. Yeah, thanks very much. I am just aware that the more I show up, the more I listen, the more I become conscious. Yeah. The more quiet I get, the more humble I get. And I feel like I'm humbly uh, staling, standing on the edge of incredible newness. 
Nice. It is nice. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That's it. That, well, see, what you're doing is witnessing to the grace of your diligence. Because you're, you're a regular participant in many of my events. And what you're saying is, it's having its way with me. Yes. yes. Yeah. 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 Gently, quietly having its way with me. And you're in gratitude about that. Yes. Thank yeah, you. Thank you thank so you. much. It's wonderful. Thank you. And so the point of this is a consciousness practice, a conscience practice. I'm going back to the Maslow model now. Receiving the light, aware of your feelings, awake to disturbances, dealing with them, taking responsibility for being in alignment. One of the concepts that I really developed in trying to help another person about adjusting to reality is, watch, watch the screen now. There's a life force and I have free will. And when I exercise free will against reality's principles, I'm in conflict and I suffer and other people suffer. And the whole point of the spiritual journey and the whole point of the human journey is to turn and be in alignment, in alignment with reality. Now you could say that I need to find out what God's will is and do it. That's nice. It's classic traditional language, but it's not necessary. Reality is that if I make decisions that are contrary to physical principles or emotional principles or spiritual principles, if I make decisions against the law of gravity, I'm going to die. But if I honor the principles of reality, I'm going to live in, and actually I'm going to flourish. I'm going to be in alignment. I love the term alignment. That's what I call self-actualization. There's the use of the feelings that I talked about. You can trust feelings in your biology. You can trust feelings in your psychology. You can trust feelings in your sociology. You just can't trust feelings in your theology. But feelings are there to guide us to what is joy and to help us avert what creates suffering. That's the role of feelings. As I mentioned, the contemplative practice is 20 minutes. Don't leave early. Show up. It's a method, not a technique. It's an action based on faith, not knowledge. We, we, we exposed us today to an awful lot of information and knowledge, but it's really about the practice based on acceptance that there is this reality that will, in fact, have its way with me. It's an awareness, not a feeling, as I just mentioned. Be still and know that I am. Notice I've truncated the phrase. We don't need the word God in that phrase. We need to improve our own consciousness. We need to participate in a process that will improve our consciousness. That's our responsibility. My effort. Becoming a lantern. I am responsible for the effort, not the result. A journey, not a destination. People get so wrapped around the axle of getting someplace. There's no place to go. No, seriously, in the, in the philosophical sense, there's no place to go. If there is this reality, it is everything and it is everywhere. The only place to go is consciousness, to be aware. 
of our unawareness and to be aware then of our awareness. A process, not a task, an experience, not an event. This is self-realization. Again, going back to that Maslow hierarchy of development, self-actualization, paying attention to our feelings, self-realization, paying attention to our soul, to use it in the context of the question that we had about soul. Becoming a lantern, lighting the path for others. The whole point of meditation is certainly our own personal development, but that's not an end in itself. It's allowing us to become a lantern with the light ever increasing in us so that it can shine in us to us and guide us, but shine in us to us through us to help other people. This is the compassion practice that the Buddhists talk about. They have two words, wisdom and compassion, in the same way that the Christians have two words, a relationship with God and a service to people. The Jews had it, love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. Love God as your, love, love your neighbor as yourself. The Christian message was very similar, but slightly different. Love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love others as God loves you. Really nice development, both of them becoming compassion practices. Not feelings, but, but actions, an intention to actually help, not manipulate. If you have any trouble with discerning whether you're enabling or helping, go to Al-Anon. They've made a science out of a 12-step program of determining what is helping and what is enabling. Helping will bring healing. Enabling will bring death. And after a long line of suffering. Unconditional love. Now, it's a motive and it's a goal and it's a vision for us. But as I mentioned, it's not possible. I cannot be unconditional because I'm by nature conditional. Can I have it as a vision statement, as an ideal, something that I know I can't achieve, but that I can work toward becoming better and better every day? Yeah, sure, absolutely. And that's why I do that. Becoming more, quote, God-like, close quote, image and likeness. I wonder what that means. It's a wonderful meditation to improve my mind so that it's much clearer about reality, to improve my will so that I'm placing myself more consistently and more realistically in alignment with reality. This is called self-transcendence, self-actualization, managing our instincts and our limbic system by our cortex, self-realization, improving that consciousness to be able to discern reality as reality is and improving our enlarging our compassion so that we're emanating we're contagious helping others it's alleged that saint augustine a fourth century christian bishop said, wherever you are, preach the good news. Well, of course, he's a Catholic bishop. He's talking about the Bible. 
good news is a synonym for gospel. They're talking about evangelization, but listen to the rest of it and, and try to neutralize all of the Catholic vocabulary and concepts. Wherever you are, preach the good news. If you have to, use words. Well, that's perfect. Be the good news. That's what Gandhi said. Be the change that you want to implement. I would like you to pray with me what I call the healing prayer. It's the seven-step prayer. It's a prelude for our leaving today to go wherever we are going to do whatever we're going to do. But it recognizes my origination. I was created, at least this is my belief system, I was created ontologically, a fancy word, meaning metaphysically. I was created. I have a soul, an animating force. Underneath that animating force is the animating force. I am the image and likeness of the creator. I am the temple of the spirit of the universe. But I have some deficiencies and I need to be healed daily, biologically, psychologically, sociologically, and especially theologically. I need to be healed and I can't do that. I can try hard to know better. I can try hard to do better. My history is that I fail. It's not a judgment, it's an observation. I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I want to do. And I want to do better and I want to know better. And there's usually a correlation. Please join me. Out loud or quietly or not at all, depending on your mood and mode my creator. I am now willing that you should have all of me, good or bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character that stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. Grant me strength, knowledge and power, wisdom, Centering prayer is a practice. It's a practice of intentional consciousness. One of the best prayers, I believe, is the prayer allegedly given to authorship by St. Francis. Of course, St. Francis didn't write it. The prayer originated sometime in the 18th or 19th century. St. Francis was around the 12th century, but it incorporates the words, the philosophy, the aspirations, the principles of a saint, of a person who had developed their humanity to an optimal level of consciousness and compassion. He uses the word channel. It's become my favorite word. I'm a channel. A channel of bringing grace and light and love into me, for me, but then being a channel of contribution and distribution to the world around me. Please join me in this prayer of, I call it the prayer of transformation. Listen to the turning from self-centeredness to other-centeredness. Listening, listen to the process, not, not an event or a task, but a process to be experienced. 
and listen to the promise of being turned, being turned from that self-centeredness to a mode of being other-centered, a relationship with power other than myself and a relationship with people in contribution, in healing and helping those around me. Lord, make me a channel of your peace, that where there is hatred, I may bring love, that where there is wrong, I may bring the spirit of forgiveness, that where there is discord, I may bring harmony, that where there is error, I may bring truth, that where there is doubt, I may bring faith, that where there is despair, I may bring hope. That where there are shadows, I may bring light. That where there is sadness, I may bring joy. Lord, grant that I may seek rather to comfort than to be comforted, to understand than to be understood, to love than to be loved. For it is by self-forgetting that one finds, it is by forgiving that one is forgiven, it is by dying that one awakens to eternal life. Amen. Eckhart Tolle in his book, Power of Now, said, the secret to life. Whoa, get a highlighter out. Get a fresh highlighter. The secret to life. Wow, this is going to be important. The secret to life, he says, is to die before you die and realize there is no death. Profound. The death of the false self so that the true self can emerge and live a full life that flourishes. Thanks everybody very much.